Welcome to the Moot Podcast. This recording was made at the Moot Spiritual Retreat in May 2010, exploring the theme of how the Trinity informs our understanding of God and for a distinctly Christian understanding of the spiritual community. This is the final recordings led by Mark Berry, Missioner and leader of the Safe Space Committee in Telford in England. Right, we're going to cover a couple of areas this morning, thinking about the nature of what it means to be a sent community, what it means to participate in Christ's mission, what that looks like, what he said to us, and really this within the Trinity, within the, 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 this picture uh, or reality of who God is. There is, this, there is always this dynamic, this sense of movement, which people have called a dance and all sorts of things. This real sense of impetus um, within this idea of Trinity. So one thing that I think that we gain from the uh, an under, seeking to understand God as a Trinity is movement. And God not being a static sitting up there on a cloud watching us or in a holy of holies or, you know, sitting behind an altar or whatever that is, there's this real sense of a God who is, um, by nature, dynamic, interrelational, um, about the negative spaces, about this line of movement and intent, um, and about relationship. So just a couple of quick Bible passages that I think relate to this. We'll have a few Bible passages today, because I'm in this first session, particular first bit of this, this session. But just to start with two, I guess, of very short ones. John 20, 21. So we're talking about being a sent community, where Jesus, um, this is in one of the, the post-resurrection appearances, and Jesus says to the disciples, quite simply, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, which is, I think, a much more potent commission than what we call the Great Commission, you know, when, the, when in, in Matthew 28, 19, isn't it? But to me, that just that simple little couplet, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Tells us so much more about what it means to participate in Christ's purpose than those sort of or perhaps more explicit words in, in Matthew 28. Um, because really what it does is it, 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 it makes it simple. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So if we are to understand, one, the nature of the relationship between us and Christ, and two, the nature of, of what we are sent to do, we only have to look at Christ. We have to look at the way that God that himself sent, that the source sent the Son. Because as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So there is something there about the nature of the sending which we can determine from looking at this relationship and therefore what that means for us to participate in Christ as Christ participates in, in the Godhead. But also really what it looks like. You know, what it means for us, what does it mean to be sent? And what does it mean about the way that we live? What does it mean about the way that we relate and engage with other people, with creation? I think then we can look and say, well, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So we can look at Christ and say, well, what does that look like? So, so we have a starting point which says, okay, how, how do we determine what it looks like and what it means? But then the other passage, which is, one of my favourite passages in Scripture, you may or may not be familiar with it, it's in the, um, you know, the Micah, the book of Micah, which I don't think gets read that often, uh, which is, is a shame in a way. Um, uh, there's, some, there's a lot of real wisdom in some of those uh, minor prophets, um, 
like uh, Amos and Micah and, you know, um, okay, once you've sort of weeded out some of the imperialistic language. But there we go. This, here, here we have this, this situation where it, it sounds like what's happened is that the people have spoken to the prophet Micah and said, what do we need to do to please God? What does it look like? What does this relationship have to look like? Um, and you get this lovely bit in Micah 6. You get this lovely sort of section where Micah is, is telling the church, telling the, the, the people of Israel, you know, what it should look like. And he says, and I paraphrase, you know, um, look, you want to know how to please God? Don't worry about sacrificing a thousand rams. You know, don't worry about all these great religious statements or festivals. Don't worry about all of that stuff. You know what you should do. You've been told what you should do. And then we get this lovely little phrase, which I'm sure you all know. You should love mercy, act justly, and walk humbly with your God. So in that little snippet, we, we, it blows away all of this religiosity and all of this, this kind of God is watching us from a distance idea of what it means to, to participate in God. Because it takes away this, it blows away, not just takes away, this sense that God is up there and what we down here is in an effort to appease him or to please him. And so often we get into that thinking about religion which is that what we are doing is we are down here attempting to please and appease God who is up there. And yet I think this little passage blows that out of the water. Because what it says is to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with your God. And if only we took that last little bit, to walk humbly with your God, that's a statement about participation and the nature of participation in God. Because it tells us that God is not up there in the distance watching us. God is not some force in the, in the, 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 the stratosphere or the, the universe who's sitting and watching and ticking boxes. But God is, is present and dynamic. Because you can't walk with a God who is not both present and dynamic, can you? You won't get very far. So that little statement, I think, tells us something really powerful about the nature of a God who is both present and dynamic. Um, in the here and the now. And our responsibility or our calling is to participate in the journey, is to walk humbly with your God. And yes, it tells us something about the attitude of how we walk. Um, we walk with humility. We walk calling for justice for other people, but also with a sense of mercy. So we don't demand justice for ourselves. So I think there's something really, for me, if there's a blueprint of what it means to be a to participate in God, we can see the character of God summed up in that little phrase, to, to, to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly. So this sense that both we have, we have this two sides of what it means to be a sent community. One is that we are sent by God, and God is ascending God. God sent his son, um, you know, John 3.16, his only begotten son. And as God sent his son, so the son sends us. So there is a sending sense to that. But at the same time as a sending sense, there's also a participating sense. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, you know, but there's, there's almost a paradox in there, isn't there? Of a God who sends and a God who we join. And, I, I, there's, and we, we can see that you know, as we look at, in a moment, we look at some of that scripture. But that, that to me is a wonderful mystery. A God who both sends us and who we go to join. It's kind of a paradox, a mystery. 
which uh, you know I think is something of this nature of God who is complex in his community. So um, just really, I'm going to sort of just go through pulling out some of, well, what does that look like then? First thing that I'll, I think we want to say, and this is, we've been sort of exploring this as a community, is that really there are, we've identified, I guess, for ourselves, four loci, four places that we walk with God, and four sort of aspects of life that actually I think we're called to do this within. The Anglican Church has what they call the five marks of mission, um, and this kind of really is a, is a reflection of that, um, although it, it sort of um, conflates a couple of them um, into, into one. So the four li- loci, as we've kind of wrestled with, is that we are sent to, uh, you know, to, to be missional, to think about actually what it means to love mercy and to act justly in our individual relationships to the person. So there is a sense that we are there to bring about shalom, transformation, restoration, etc., for individuals. Now, you know, you and I probably are aware that, that, you know, growing up within the modern church, that that's where a lot of the focus has been, that the, the, per, the point of evangelism is for individual souls, people to come and know Jesus personally, and it's that very individualistic kind of focus. Well, what we want to say is actually, you know what, that's true. That is true. There is a sense that we are called... To, um, to engage in that sense of reconciliation for individuals. So we don't want to lose that sense of personal evangelism. We don't want to lose that sense of individuals having their lives restored, being reconciled with God. We don't want to lose that sense. And sometimes we, people like us are accused, of, when we're thinking about mission, of saying, oh, well, you know, we don't want to do evangelism. That just isn't true. There is still that sense that as individuals, our lives, lives need transforming. But it's not just about individuals, it's also about communities, the places we live and the people we live amongst. Um, and we're called to walk with community and in community. And so for, for us that may well, you know, for me that's that generally is Telford United Football Club. That's where I live my life, that's my, that's my community, outside of my, you know, my Christian community, where I'm, I feel that I'm called to, to walk on a daily basis, is, is within Telford United Football Club. There are other places, but that's the place that I live my life. It's great. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. I found a ticket in your Bible. Yeah. <laughs> God is good. You know, I mean, I think... It needs to be if you're a Telford. Exactly. <laughs> that's the idea, though, is that you are called... It's actually something you enjoy. It's not like yeah. you're beating your head around. But it's something that you can be part of. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that... For me, that sense of, well, look, this is my life, this is my daily life. So, you know, God loves me, um, much as sometimes I don't feel it, but I believe God does love me, and therefore, actually, he puts me in a place where I can be me. Yeah. It is about calling into a particular place. I, I mean, I wasn't a Telford supporter. I'm, I'm a Derby County supporter. I grew up as a Derby County supporter. But I, I'm a football supporter. I love football. So, as a football supporter, what do you do when you move to a town? In this case, because if you're passionate about watching football and you don't want to travel off you get involved in the local club, and that's what happened with me, although I'm still a Derby County supporter, I always will be, but I'm also now part of the community in Telford. Mm-hmm. And that, but it was that sense of this is who I am. So I think you know, you're wrapped up in, it's the whole thing's wrapped up in who you are and the place you're called to be. Mm-hmm. So you know, I would say I'm a football supporter, <clears throat> but I'm also a Christian, and you can't separate the two. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the way it is. And so therefore I live my life in the football club, and I have a, a sense of mission and calling to that community. And it's explicit, 
but it's also who I am. So I can sit in the bar as I do regularly and talk football with the manager of the football club, and you know, and not feel, oh, I've got to go away and research this because this is who I, this is. I understand what's going on, um, but also they are aware that I am there and why I'm there and who I am. So there's this sort of honesty and openness at the beginning of, of you know. So the, that's what I think the sense of being sent is not about necessarily the old mission paradigm of sending a cross-cultural missionary. Might one of the things I argue a little bit within CMS is actually, I'm, you know, there is place for cross-cultural missionary, but I'm not a cross-cultural missionary. I'm not. I, I'm in places where I would be if I wasn't a Christian. So that doesn't, that means I'm, you know, for me it's actually indigenous. It's, it's who I am. And it's, it's my life lived in my community. Um, okay, I wouldn't necessarily be living in Telford, but I have no idea where I'd be. You know, so that sense of community. But then there's also that we're called to live and walk within culture. And I think there is a calling on us to bringing about mercy and justice, reconciliation, recreation, all of that stuff within the context of culture. For me, that means that we're actually called to shape culture and to make culture, not to, um, to try and, in a sense, try and get inside and change it, but actually to be leading in the way of culture. So there's, there's, there's person, there's community, there's culture, and there is also creation, uh, and how important it is for us to walk within creation and to be, uh, bring about mercy, justice, and all that stuff, actually for the creation and in the midst of creation. So whether that's living seasonally, whether that's living ethically, you know, that's worked out in context, because this is about you know, communities and actually how we live in, 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 dynamic, in a dynamic relationship um, with, with the place that we are. So for, for us, I think we said there's, you know, there's those four senses of, four loci of, of where we're sent, person, community, culture, and creation. I'm just going to stick a few passages, because I think, again, we can look at, at what it means to be an incarnate people, and something of this attitude, and there are loads of passages that you can look at and say, well, what, was it, what does it mean? What does it look like? And for us, these are some of the ones that are important to us. Most of them I'm sh- you may be familiar with, I don't know. John 13 it's the story of the washing of the feet. So our sense of, of what it means to be a sent people, to look at Christ and say, as the Father sent Christ, so, we, so Christ sends us, what does that look like? Well, the Father sent Christ to be a servant and to wash people's feet and to feed people and to love people. So our starting point is often, well, what does it look like to serve? What does it look like to get down and deep in the shit of people's lives um, and not worry about tainting yourself? Um, yeah, okay, when we physically do this, which we do on a regular basis, we have to put surgical gloves on because it's the law now. But when we wash people's feet, it's not about a sanitised kind of religious ceremony. It's about getting a... An, it's about... Well, in fact, one of our liturgies, which is in our little book, our Maundy Thursday liturgy is called Scraping Off the Shit because that's what it's like. That's what getting down, deep, da- deep down and dirty in people's lives is like, is scraping off the shit. And that real sense of service is not a sanitised, nice thing. I remember being asked by a vicar once to take part in a Monday Thursday, and he said, can you make sure you wash your feet before you come? And I was like, so what's the point then? You know, ah, it's symbolic. No, it's not symbolic. It's real, isn't it? I mean, that's what mission is about. It's not about symbolic gestures. It's, it's about what does it actually feel like to be, you know, on your knees, holding onto somebody's foot and washing it. And that's happened to us on regular occasions. You know, I had a, sent a, a situation where I was... Um, it was on New Year's Eve two years ago, well, a year and a bit ago, if you know, not the last New Year's Eve, but the one before that, 
a, a lady came out in the nightclub and she took her shoes off and she stood on a broken bottle. Mm. And um, so I ended up kneeling on the floor covered in plastic, plastic apron over my knees, plastic apron on over here, surgical gloves on. It's all the control of substances, hazardous to health. And taking bits of glass out of her foot and, and washing her feet. And she was sat on one chair and her partner, the guy, was sat on the next chair. And she was on a plastic chair in the foyer of our thing and I was just cleaning up her feet and we were just chatting, it was lovely. And she was an Irish lady and she looked at me and she said, uh, well, she, I, first of all, I had this very strange sensation, um, and I'm not one for kind of charismatic kind of visions and all that kind of stuff, but I had this real sensation of, of Jesus looking at me and kind of laughing in a, in a fraternal way and really sort of gently kind of chortling away. And, um, and when I kind of looked at him in my mind's eye, he looked at me and said, he said, now you get it. Now you get it. He said, you had to do it to get it, but now you get it. And it was that real sense of, okay, so when you said wash people's feet, you meant wash people's feet, didn't you? And he was laughing at me. And at that moment, uh, the, the, the woman looked at me, and she looked down, and I said she was Irish, so it was just one of those verbal inflections that she said, oh, God bless you, sweetheart, you know. And I looked at her, and I said, you know what? The funny thing is, he just has done. <laughs> and, and she's like, oh, really? And, you know, and, and it was just that sense that in that moment, actually discovering what mission really meant, and it reminds me very much of some of the Shane Claiborne's, you know, writing. But mission is about getting deep down and dirty in people's lives. And that's what Jesus meant. I, I sincerely believe that Jesus didn't do some kind of sanitised ritual, but he scraped the donkey shit off his friend's feet. You know, that is really what it means. Luke 10 um, is the story when Jesus sends out the 72. And he says, you know, go and uh, the, the harvest is ripe, but the labourers are few. Um, go lightly, go with no baggage knock on doors and offer peace. And if peace is returned, go in and take the meals there and live there and heal the sick and preach the kingdom. And if peace isn't returned, shake the dust off your feet and move on. So there we have, two, you know, again, that two senses of um, what it means to be sent, which is that Jesus is sending the 72 and saying, go on, go lightly, don't take all your crap with you, just go. But also that sense that he says the harvest is ripe, but the labourers are few. And go and knock on the door, and if there is a person of peace, they will open the door. You offer peace, and if peace is returned, go in. And I get a sense from that passage again of this paradox that we are being sent, the disciples were being sent, but they were being sent to the place that God was already. The harvest is ripe, but the labourers are few. There's always, there's been work going on in the field for so long. Look, it's your turn, get out there, go and join God in the process of the harvest. And as a symbol, or, or a, a, signif a signifier, I guess, of where God is, there will be somebody who will open the door and welcome you in. There will be favour. There will be a person of peace. And we've taken that quite literally and knocked on doors of communities and said, you know, we want to come and offer you peace. And what we found is that most of the time, there have been times where we've had to shake the dust off our feet, but actually, generally, um, there's been somebody who said, oh yeah, great, come in. And we've always said, look, we are your guests. We want to come in and we want to live in this community. We're not doing a hit and run. We want to be part of this community. But please remember that we are your guests. And if you ever want to tell us to get lost, tell us to get lost and we will go. Um, and when I said this to the chairman of the football club, I said, I will still come and support the football club because I love football, but I'll shut my mouth and we'll just be you know, a season ticket holder. But what we found is that actually God has been there opening the doors. Um, and I mentioned, I mentioned this to a couple of people, but when I rang up the chairman of the football club and said, can I come and have a chat with you? And we sat in the control room overlooking the pitch, and I told him this story. 
I, t I actually, you know, I told him the story of Luke 10. And I said, look, this is what we're about. Jesus sends out the 72, blah, 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 blah. And he says, offer peace. And if peace is returned, go in. I said, well, I, we want to offer you peace, but we're not quite sure what it would look like for you. So could you tell us what it would look like? And an hour later, he was still talking about what peace would look like. And I said, well, you know, we can't promise all of that, but we'd love to get involved. So can we start with a few things where we would like to offer you some peace? Um, so we started with sweeping the terraces after the games. Um, I'm now on the board. The, tr uh, the, the, the football club's run by a trust. It's owned by the supporters. And they asked me to go on the trust board. I've just done a funeral for somebody who died in the football club. You know, we've written a book. That, um, and, and it was kind of nice. I could go on for ages. But there's a nice story that the football club um, died five years ago, or nearly six years ago now, because it went bankrupt. The guy who owned it went bankrupt, and the football club went out of existence. And the supporters club together to... Um, you know, to, to relaunch the football club. And there's been, since then, there's been a lot of bitterness between the people who are involved in the old football club and the people who run the new football club. So I said, well, I'd like to write a book. Um, can we write a book? So we interviewed uh, about 20 people who were involved, some from the old football club, some from the new football club, and we wrote a book and published it, telling the story of that transition. Um, and, but not, uh, not edited, but we allowed, we did it like articles, so everybody told their own story. And then we just, we, so each page has got a different person, or each little chapter's a different person. And then we had a big party, and we invited all the people that were in the book, and people from the old football club, and people from the new football club, to a party, players, supporters, managers, etc., um, to a big party. And we had a massive party, and we just completely blew out that history. Um, and and took away all of that tension, and it's been superb what's happened since then. Mm. Now, it's not spiritual. It's not, not preaching the kingdom, but we are bringing peace, and I think that sense of relationship that grows from bringing peace and knowing that God is there actually and, and being, being honest about that. So Luke 10 is a, an important one. And the, and the ability to say, well, okay, look, it isn't right. So we shake the dust off our feet and we move on. That's okay. That's all right. Um, and sometimes we bang our head against brick walls for too long, missing opportunities that God's saying, oh, gosh, I'm over here. You know, oh, yes, but we must make sure, we, we must make a breakthrough here first. Like, well, you know, sorry, anyway, okay, I can go on. Um, Matthew 5, you know, is the, probably aware of the, the Beatitudes, the attitude of being peacemakers. And actually our attitude, our, hu our, our humility, following Christ's humility. Christ was persecuted I was talking to somebody the other day about this and saying it, it really winds me up why, how, how many Christians at the moment are bleating about being persecuted. Do they not know Matthew 5 when it says, blessed are the persecuted? You know, Jesus, did, you know, Jesus actually worked through his persecution. That's part of our lot. If we're sent in the way that Christ is sent, we can, we, that's part of our lot. So actually being peacemakers in the middle of being persecuted is an incredibly powerful thing and is being sent the way Christ was sent. 1 Thessalonians 2 is all about giving up power. Um, it's Paul's writing to the people of the, the church in Thessalonica, and he says, you know, although we, had a, uh, although we had authority as apostles of Christ, we chose not to use it over you. Instead, we nurtured you like a mother nurtures a child. Giving up of power, eschewing of power, uh, and nurturing, and not stamping our foot and saying we have authority. So there's something about in both those passages about the willingness to be a servant and the willingness to give up power and to join God in what God is doing. John 4 is the Samaritan woman at the well. I won't do John 13 again because that's another part of the washing feet, but it's the, the, the community aspect. But John 4, this is again this sense of being sent. If you look at the, the, the way Jesus lived his life, 
we see in, in, in John 4 this wonderful story where Jesus is doing something really, really radical. And so radical that he has to send the disciples off shopping, which I love that sense. And if you, you, know, you notice that at the beginning of the passage of John 4, when it says that, that Jesus was on his own because all the disciples were shopping. Now, I don't do a lot of shopping because I hate shopping. And I can't shop with my wife because I shop at a million miles an hour and she has to read every, every kind of, you know, ingredients of every packet to make sure it's nice and stuff. And so I can't go shopping with my wife. But I know that even if I do, it only takes a couple of us to go to Tesco's. It doesn't take 12 people to go shopping. Um, so I have, this re- I have this kind of, and it's a flight of fancy, but there you go. I have this sense that Jesus had packed the disciples off because having experienced what they were like before... He, knew, he probably had an idea that they would not have been able to cope with what he was about to do. Because he puts himself in the one place, really, which is, breaks every single taboo in the book. You know, there he is. He's um, a Jewish man, a rabbi, about to meet and engage with a Samaritan woman who's socially outcast, and yet he chooses to go there. And he chooses to go at a time when he knows that the only fir- that, that she will be there, you know, in the middle of the day when people didn't go to the well. There's something about that impetus in his life, which is, I'm going to go to the place where nobody else will go, but I know that somebody there is going to need me, and stuff what anybody else says about it. And that impetus, that dynamic within the life of Christ, I think is part of that sending. As Christ was sent, so I, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So for me, that impetus of being a sent people means to go to the places that nobody else would go, nobody else would want to go, and everybody is going to criticise you for going there. Or nobody's going to understand why you're there and the logic of that. And there is something, I think, incredibly powerful about simply going to the places that nobody else will go. Something which actually raises a, a character of God which isn't about come to church and isn't about the acceptability, the socially acceptability, the, the religious stuff. It's actually about the radical uncomfortableness of what it means to be a follower of, of, of God and a follower of Christ. So this sense of being sent um, is, I think, actually a big part of what it means. And, and if we are called to be sent as Christ sent, we can look at this. And there's many other passages when we can look at Christ and say, you know, here he is with the tax collectors, the lepers, the prostitutes. Here he is actually turning the tables in the temple. Um, you know, here he is on the road. Here he is on the street corner. Um, what does it look like to be sent as Christ was sent? And what does it look, to, look like to go and join God? And I think we've got this paradox this whole time, this complexity about indwelling within and, and also being sent. Brueggemann writes in his book, I've got a couple of quotes from him this morning, which we've read as a community and have found it an incredible you know, just a process to read. We, don't, we haven't really read books as a community, but we read this. Brueggemann writes, uh, Shalom persons are people who have had the intervention in their life, a call to leave the brickyard and to go out, a call to be healed and get in our right minds, a call to, a call to yield our stuff and follow him. The intervention changes everything, but it demands abandoning and embracing, and that is always promise and threat. It is promised to us in our helplessness, like the, demoni- the, the demoniac. I don't know how to pronounce that. It is a threat to us in our abundance, like the rich young man. All of us could be freed and whole, but maybe it's tougher on established folks. That is a lesson we are learning as we study where liberation movements break out and where they stagnate. In Egypt, the Habiru slaves got their freedom. The Pharaoh never had an exodus.
but is called to leave the brickyard and uh, to be healed, but to yield our stuff and, and follow him. The complexity of it, I mean, as I said at the beginning, we don't want to lose our sense of evangelism. We want to keep the sense that it is about, that it is part of one of the loci, one of the locus of, of, um, of mission is about individuals and about calling people to, to possibility. And we talk about um, uh, be, bearing witness to the possibility of reconciliation with, with the creator. That, that to me is evangelism. Look, this is good news. You can be restored in a relationship with the God who made you. That's great news because then you can start to be recreated and restored as, as, as who you were meant to be. So I think we do. Um, and so I wouldn't want to say that we don't do evangelism. Our sense is that evangelism is part of the being good news. If somebody could read to me John chapter 6, verse 26 to 35... <laughs> John chapter 6, 20, 26 to 35, yeah. and then 53 to 58. We could read the whole section, but that would take too long. Jesus answered, I am telling you the truth. You are looking for me because you ate the bread and had all you wanted, not because you understood my miracles. Do not work for food that goes bad. Instead, work for the food that lasts for eternal life. This is the food which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has put his mark of approval on him. So they asked him, what can we do in order to do what God wants us to do? Jesus answered, what God wants you to do is to believe in the one he sent. They replied, what miracle will you perform so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the desert, just as the scripture says, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. I'm telling you the truth, Jesus said, what Moses gave you was not the bread from heaven. It is my father who gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread that God gives is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they asked him, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. He who comes to me will never be hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus said to them, I'm not, I'm telling you the truth. If you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourselves. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him to life on the last day, for my flesh is the real food, my blood is the real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I live in him. The living Father sent me, and because of him I live also. In the same way, whoever eats me will live because of me. This, then, is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the bread that your ancestors ate, but then later died. The one who eats this bread... For us, there is something which unites this dynamic in what it means to be community and to participate in the Trinity and to participate in the Godhead, which is that we are struggling and wrestling with being community. Uh, we were talking a bit about last night and all of that struggle, what it means, and all of that tension that we have. And also then seeking to see that as an impetus for actually how we live missionally, how we live our lives, and how we connect with the community. And sometimes, in a sense, there's a paradox between this community-intensive and intentional and intimate community and this kind of incarnate ministry and mission. And it can feel at times like, you know we're being pulled between this working on being community and wrestling with it, but also this wishing to, to get out and live lives. And I sense that within that, 
within that tension, there is this feeding backwards and forwards between the, the sort of um, the community that is sustaining us and the participating in God, in worship and in community and each other, and this being sent and the participating in God who is ascending God and a God whom we join. There's a real tension within that. But I have this sense that within that, this is what participating in the Trinity feels like. Because there's this kind of complex dynamic going on. Fides writes, A sacramental lifestyle is based upon the commitment of God's whole triune self to bodies. While we have largely concentrated on sacrament as the body of Christ, we have also been thinking of sacrament as a doorway into the perichoresis of three persons in God, as an invitation into the divine dance. If the whole world is sacramental and is the place for encounter with God, we must surely speak of the universe as the body, as the body of the Trinity. So this whole thing is this dance of participation, of community and intimacy, of mission and connection, uh, and, and reconciliation and peace. And the whole thing is a struggle. And the whole thing is a process of wrestling and seeing, you know, engaging with this dynamic, engaging with this relationship. And for us, what I want to lead us really is we, in this, in this Bible passage, we have this wonderful um, sense in John 6. And I, I love the fact that Jesus starts off by saying, you know, the reason you followed me is not because I filled you spiritually, but because I filled your bellies. Because you were nourished, um, then you're seeking a deeper nourishment. And here I think there is a real rupture in the religious system going on in this small passage. This is real tearing apart of what religion had become and religion is now. Because Jesus is um, tearing apart this system of a mediated God, of a God who needs to have mediation, of a God who is, is sort of distant and for whom we have to approach with all sorts of processes and structures and, and so on. Here is a very tangible God, a God of filled bellies and filled spirits, a God who deals with us in an everyday way, not through a, a, a religious system, but actually by caring for us. And I think this, this is just this incredible combination of the human and the divine in real relationship and in real tension. Um, and this care for the physical, but also this calling to a spiritual meal. And that meal, replacing that meal, replacing that meal that we all do, the breaking of the bread and the sharing of wine, and replacing it at the hub of life, actually seems to be some, some way of always bringing us into this tension of the filling of the bellies and the filling of the spirits. And this rupture in the system, which is, look, we want to take this out of this sense of a, a, a religious observance and for it to become, sing, some, become something far more vital. In, in uh, you know, for us, I guess, I'll stick these up, the, the reasons why we, we, we find it's part of that process. In fact, it's the centre. It's about us being nourished in Christ. You know, as a community, the sense of, of how we are fed both physically and spiritually in coming together. Um, and this, as I mentioned a moment ago, this interplay between our sense of being nourished and our sense of wanting to nourish it is brought up, is brought back into this, in this part of, of the table. So we submit to God's will 
and we trust in Christ's person and divinity. But this is the thing, really. It's about being aligned in God, in God's purpose, in Christ's living, and in the body. So, to put fairly simply, the Orthodox um, Church talks about the liturgy after the liturgy, that mission is the liturgy which follows the liturgy of the Eucharist. Um, And you can't have one without the other. Um, And we would say, and we say that there is a vitality about this meal. And there is a vitality in that we are submitting to God's will because God called us to do it. You know, and there's just that sense of it's vital because we're told to do it. We're told to break bread and share wine. But that's not the end of the story. There's a vital there's a vitality to it which is about life giving. Because when we're in this um tension of um trying to be a community that, that models the Trinity both in its intimacy and in its incarnation, that this meal actually calls us back to an understanding of God, which is about incarnation, is about physicality, but also is about resurrection, and is about restoring of life and of spiritual life. So there's a real and spiritual mystery to this meal. But there's also a physical calling us to a way of life. If we want to look at as how Christ was sent by the Father, then this meal tells us all about it. But not only does it do that, it actually includes us and draws us up into the Godhead, into God's family. So it's participating at Christ's table, both in the sense of learning that physical, but also in the sense of being embraced into that um, reality, that spiritual reality. So it's life-giving, and it's life-giving to all we do. So what we have found is that, you know, uh, uh, Bevans and Schroeder talk about the liturgy after the liturgy, and they say, the liturgy is the Eucharist, is always the entrance into the presence of the triune God, and always ends with the community being sent forth in God's name to transform the world in God's image. Mission is conceived, in other words, as the liturgy after the liturgy, the natural consequence of entering into the divine presence in worship. So we find that if we're going to wrestle with being community and we're going to wrestle with what it looks like to engage in mission, the only way we can do that is to participate in God and to actually engage with God. And for us as a community, this meal has become the central act of of drawing us back into who God is and our status as adopted heirs. So community is not simply a model of Christ a model of God, it's actually a participation in God. Um, and just to finish, I'm going to read you one last bit from, from uh, uh, our friend Fides. The extension of sacrament reaches beyond the bodies of believers into the whole body of the world. From the focus of the Lord's table, we can discern the presence of God at every meal table. And in the whole process of sustaining life in our complex ecosystem, Every living creature and plant at whatever level of creation needs food and nourishment in order to survive and grow. We may find here the presence of the generous God who was found at the meal table of Jesus when he ate with outcasts and sinners during his ministry and when he shared table fellowship with his disciples after the resurrection. The sacramental life is one that is open to the presence of God and can open a door for others into eternal movements of love and justice that are there ahead of us and before us and embracing us. This openness can be felt like an invitation to a dance, but sometimes like the raw edges of a wound. This is participation in God. 
This is Theology. Thank you for listening to this Moot podcast. For more information on the Moot community and its resources, please visit www.moot.uk.net.